Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a sermon by Rabbi Matt Shapiro. Some people have started talking about, with excitement, uh, the moment that this will all be over. That there will be some climactic moment when we'll get the word from the authorities that we can all leave our houses and they're saying, I'm going to be partying in the streets, I'm going to go to this celebration, I'm going to go to this concert, I'm going to go to this restaurant, I'm going to, you know, and, and just snap back to life the way it was. But that seems to be based on a dramatic misunderstanding of what this will actually be like. It's highly unlikely it's actually going to be that simple, that instantaneous, that it'll just be one grand moment where we all sort of burst out of our homes to dance in the streets and celebrate all together that we've made it through this crisis. Um, That it's probably going to be a much more gradual process. That there will be restrictions that are gradually lifted that there will be some increase of, of freedom of movement and of gathering. There might be restrictions that get put back into place. Like this is, this is a long haul that we are likely looking at that will not have uh, a simple single moment of, of liberation from this situation and then we never have to worry about it again and things go back to the way they were. That is almost certainly not what is going to happen. And that seems resonant with the holiday that that we're celebrating. That leaving Egypt was not the end of the story, that in some ways it was just the beginning. And in fact, um, there was still challenge and strife that emerged after that. And we see this even in how the Haggadah is written, the Tiferet Uziel, an 18th century uh, Polish Hasidic teacher. He notes in the Haggadah, that when we talk about the three signs that we need to talk about, Pesach, Matzah, Maror, why is it that Maror comes after Matzah? And even in the brachot that we say, I was thinking about, even in the brachot that we say, we bless the Matzah before the Maror. So why, why should this be? In terms of a bracha, a hamoti covers all foods. Right? You shouldn't say another bracha after you say moti. You're covered for the whole meal. And in terms of uh, the time that unfolds in terms of the story, the maror, of course, is for the bitterness of slavery. The matzah is for the freedom of the unleavened bread that, that we eat. It's our bread of freedom. So why would we refer to the maror after the matzah? It should be the other way around. And the Tiferet Uziel says something very interesting that, that I think holds um, wisdom for us as we'll be moving through this. He says, only when their labors ceased did they realize the price they had paid. He says, only when you rest do you feel the labor, the toll that your labor has taken. Only when you rest do you feel the toll that your labor has taken. So in some ways, and we see this in the narrative as it unfolds coming out of Shemot and in the wanderings of the people through the desert, there is a bitterness that remains. There is a longing to go back to Egypt. They're not happy. They kvetch. We know we're a kvetchy people in the desert. And he's saying, yeah, the bitterness doesn't really show up until after they're already out of Egypt. We still eat matzah. We still celebrate our liberation. And we also need to be realistic about the fact that bitterness will linger. And in some ways, it will only fully emerge 
after we've made it through a situation of real pain and strife and sorrow and difficulty. And so in that way, the perceived ending is really only just the beginning. That yes, leaving Egypt is the end of that chapter of the narrative, but it's still just the first step, the prerequisite to really getting free. We still need to receive Torah. We still wander through the desert. There's still a long time stretching ahead of us before we make it to where we're going. So yes, it's an ending, and it's still just the beginning. And so I'm thinking about right now here too, staying safe at home. I wish it was going to be the last step in dealing with this crisis, but it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. Safe at home is actually the prerequisite to getting things under control so that we don't overwhelm our, our healthcare system, so that the virus spreads on a linear curve rather than an exponential curve, so that we increase the likelihood of being able to get it under control. And then, once it's under control, then we move through the challenge of how to navigate it from there, and it is only then, perhaps, that some of the bitterness of the situation that we're now in will really come forth, that that ending might really just be a beginning in terms of what really will unfold from here. Many of you know that uh, before I worked here at Betham, I worked at Beit Shuva, an addiction recovery center uh, that has Jewish spirituality as part of its treatment model. And a few people have written about this already in terms of seeing uh, this situation through the construct of addiction and recovery. And I was struck by that parallel here too, that when I would work with people at Beit Shuva and looking at a framework of recovery from addiction, that it's not that once you stop drinking, you're healed. No, no. Once you stop drinking, that's what then makes it possible for you to move forward, that the, the cessation of the addictive behavior is just the start, just the first step to a process that has bitterness and challenge, and difficulty, but you can't engage in that process until you've stopped drinking, right? Only then can you look at the wreckage of your past. Only then can you start to mend relationships. Only then can you start to self-reflect to see how you don't go back to those patterns again. But it only starts with something that you might think is the actual ending. And so today, as we're celebrating taking our first steps towards freedom, I couldn't help but think about, well, you know, when you think about recovery, you talk about steps all the time. In fact, there's 12 of them that people talk about a lot. And so the first step in AA is that we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. That when addicts and alcoholics gather, that that's the first step said to start uh, what the process of recovery looks like. I think it's fair to say that though many of us might not consider ourselves to be powerless over alcohol, we're certainly seeing that we're powerless over any number of things in our life right now. And that in admitting that powerlessness, in starting to surrender and to let go and to say, yes, this is the situation that we're in, it actually makes it easier. Instead of clinging to a false hope or this isn't how it should be, or why does it have to be like this, in letting go, in moving to a place and trying to stay in a place of acceptance, 
that's how we can start to move through this with a little bit of peace of mind. And it's not easy. And it's still difficult. So where do we go from there? Assuming we get to that place of surrender, of acceptance, recognizing that we're not in control of this situation. Well, the second step might offer some wisdom there. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Faith. Trust. If I can come to some kind of faith and trust and hope that there's a way forward, I could be restored to some sanity. Have you noticed, I've noticed more than, more, I think, in the past month and a half, people have been telling me, and I've been telling people to stay sane. Have you been hearing that? Stay sane, stay safe. Stay safe, stay sane. That's become sort of a refrain that we're offering each other because, man, it is feeling like a crazy time. So how do we restore ourselves to sanity? Whatever your sense of a power greater than yourself might be. It could be God. It might not be God. It might be community. It might be uh, the energy in the world. It might be that shared oxygen that we all breathe that I was talking about earlier, that there's something that connects us all. Whatever it is, there is something bigger than us. And by remembering that there's something bigger than us, and it's not just about me, it's about we, and there's a larger connective force holding us all so that we can move, this, move through this together. When I get there, it makes me feel a little more sane. And it gives me hope. And we need to have hope. We can't do this without hope. And I just read a phenomenal quote that really resonated with me from the great 20th century therapist and thinker Eric Fromm. This is what he said about hope. He said, To hope means to be ready at every moment for that which is not yet born. There is no sense in hoping for that which already exists or for that which cannot be. Those whose hope is strong see and cherish all signs of new life and are ready every moment to help the birth of that which is ready to be born. Sometimes Rabbi Kligfeld, when he's leading a meditation, will encourage us to be in a position of poised rest, sort of sustaining our awareness even as we relax into what is. And this seems connected with that. There's no use hoping I might lead services the second day of Pesach. I'm already doing it. Or there's no use in hoping that I can teleport because, well, that's not possible. But I can find hope, I sustain hope by seeing any and all glimmers of how to move through a situation of pain and difficulty and doing then everything I can to bring that into the world. And that's not just hope in the abstract, that's then what an action of hope is. We know well that we're told, In every generation, a person should see himself as if he left Egypt. And usually there's a challenge there in terms of saying, well, how is it possible? I'm not in any kind of slavery. I, I don't know what that's like. And so then the challenge to grapple with there is, how do I see myself as if I was really in that situation to then move out of it? 
right? What, what would that look like? And, and trying to wrap our heads around what a constricting, painful, difficult situation might feel like to then move out of and to put ourselves in that place and then to say, but Pesach is the time that we put ourselves in that place and see that we can move out of it. Well, this year that feels a little different. This year, I'll speak for myself, and I'd imagine many of you are feeling the same way. I feel the constriction. I feel the the narrowness of Egypt. I feel more than I've ever felt in my life restriction and constriction and narrowness and, and being held in a situation for which it feels like in dark moments, like there really might not be an escape. So for me this year, there's a different focus. It's not about, can I see myself in a narrow situation? Now for me, the challenge is seeing as if I've left Egypt, as if I'm already out. Not where I am now, but where I might be. To surrender, to say, yes, this is where I am, and it's possible to get out. And I'm going to look with hope to take every action I can to bring us out of this situation. And that's my obligation, this Pesach. I need to see myself as if I'm already out. And I shouldn't kid myself. I still need to surrender. I still need to let go. We are where we are. The situation we're facing is what it is. And I look vigilantly and hopefully for anything and everything that I can do to move out of it. And so there's a real paradox here that that bitterness still might lie ahead of us and that there won't be the the outpouring of freedom, that one instantaneous moment when it all lifts. And still, as I mentioned earlier, I'm feeling real gratitude for the people who I love, for my wife, for my kids, for my parents, for my siblings. I'm talking to my family more than I usually do. I'm feeling really connected to friends who I usually talk with maybe once a month. I'm talking to them weekly, if not daily now. I'm trying to bring out those glimmers of hope And hope, yes, is found in the first responders and the doctors and the nurses and everyone who's at the front lines of this crisis and finding ways to support them and in doing everything we can to keep our community safe by staying at home and being mindful of washing our hands and keeping our faces covered and all of that. And also we find hope in each other. And also we find hope in ourselves. And we need to seek that out. And so, yes, a perceived ending might just be only the beginning, but every day there's the possibility that there can be a beginning of hope and that we can turn the corner on this. And that's what the story of Pesach is really about, that at any moment freedom can break forth. And our tradition tells us that that's not an option, that's actually an obligation. We have to see ourselves as if we're already out. Not foolishly, not delusionally, but can we see ourselves already there? We have an obligation to see ourselves that way. We're going to get out of this. Pesach tells us we have to see that. And that's an incredible gift. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. 
If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.